What do you value as a church? Maybe you're a guest and I could ask you this question. What are you looking for in a church? We live in an age where people talk about church shopping as though you're going to a mall and you're trying to find the exact right store that suits your needs. And so we can all have this mentality in our American consumerism where we bring that into the church. And so I just want to begin today with just asking the question is, what should a church look like? Maybe if, if you're kind of visiting or being checking this out online, then maybe you're thinking, well, I want a church that's really missional. Or maybe you think, no, 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 we need a church that is theologically sound. No, we need a reformed church. No, no, what we need is a church that is engaging or that's not boring. Hopefully that's not the case. Or you think maybe, no, what we need is a church where, where I feel this spirit is, is moving and is active. Or you think, no, what we need is just really relevant preaching. No, we need expositional preaching. And so the list can go on, on on ways that we can approach the church and think, this is what I'm looking for or what I believe she should be. And that's a long conversation, and, and we certainly do talk about some of these things in New Start, which is our, our membership class about who we are as a church. But here for this morning, I'm just trying to get you to think about the reality that a lot of people in our world don't really have clarity, especially where we live here in Central Texas, don't have clarity on what they're looking for in a church or what a church should actually be. And we live in an age right now where we're being told that the church is not essential. When HUB is essential, but the church is not essential. Where for several months, dentists were not essential and getting your hair cut is not essential. I don't know how you rationalize that one. But in an age where the church is being described as something that is just optional, it's something that you go do. They're like, so what's the difference if you, if you gather as a people or if you just watch online or forget it all together? It's just a church. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't actually impact your life. It's not really essential. What does it mean to actually be a part of the church? To be part of the people of God. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you that it is a identity defining. It is eternity defining. It will completely impact how you think, how you feel, how you live, who you become, is how you understand what it means to be part of the people of God. And so as we jump in and continuing our series, looking at various different threads, so the Bible is, is one story. It is the story of redemption through the Messiah, and it is all about creating a people. Everything about the Bible, it's one story. It's about creating a people that God deeply loves that then he lost. As we looked at two weeks ago, when there is the fall, when we rebelled and became sinful, and yet God has a purpose and a plan to restore his creation, to bring his people back home 
near to his heart where they belong, which is what he has created us for. So the Bible has a storyline. It's one story, and there's four key words, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So we've been looking at this every week, and we will for the rest of the summer. So these four words, creation, you see in Genesis 1 and 2. We see God is creating for one purpose, to display his glory. So that's what you see in the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. The story continues. You get to Genesis 3. Now you have fall. We have humans are rebellious. We are under the curse of sin and death. We talked about this last time, that we are totally depraved. What that means is that we are holistically, completely mind, body, soul, heart. All of us holistically, we are corrupted and we have our hearts are inclined. They drift towards evil and we desire it. We want idols. Every one of us. We're depraved. We're fallen. And because of that, the world is broken. There's disease and decay and death. There's sin. So the world is sinful, and that includes you and me. So there's a, the story of creation and the fall. And then in Genesis 3, verse 15, you get the promise of Messiah, who will destroy the serpent, crush the head of the enemy, and will deliver us and will bring us back into the garden. So the story of redemption is the whole Bible, essentially, from Genesis 3:15 all the way to Revelation chapter 20. That's what you see. The Bible is the story of God redeeming his people and bringing them back. And in the very end, Revelation 21 and 22, you have the last one, which is consummation. You have new creation. So the story is complete from beginning to end of God living with his people, being led by Jesus, who is a new Adam, the new head of a new humanity. So this is the Bible storyline from Genesis to Revelation, from the garden to the new earth. This is the story. And so we're learning how the Bible fits together, how it holds together. And, and my prayer has been in the series that you would just be in awe of who God is and that you would have a hunger for his word. This type of series is called biblical theology, where we're tracing these various themes that begin in the garden, that point to Jesus, fulfilled in him, and go to the end of time. And so there's various different threads that are all woven into the fabric of God's story. And so today, we're looking at the biblical thread of the people of God. We're going to be considering what it means to be part of the people of God, and how this thread begins in the garden, and it goes to the end of time. And so today's theme is how God is bringing a people together. And so let's just take a minute, let's just pray. And let's just ask the Spirit to be heavy upon us. He would open our eyes and, and that the heavens would open and that you would see Jesus. Father, this morning we are humbled and we are grateful. We don't take for granted that we can even gather. The fact that we are here together in one room in your name, praising you for you are worthy, is overwhelming and humbling. Thank you. Thank you for calling us to be your children, adopting us into your family. We can know you as Father, that we belong to each other as brothers and sisters, and that we are part of your people. And so now as we dig into your word, God, 
and is to better understand what the significance is of being your people. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we would have our minds focused here and, and not on what we have to do later today, but that we would just hunger for you and hunger for your presence, God. For we're desperate for you. We need you. We need your healing, your freedom, your hope, your transformation, your purpose. You are our everything. We just ask that you be glorified and that we would be gripped by your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we consider being the people of God, I'm gonna have four truths for you. So we're just kind of just tracking this. And so number one, first truth about the people of God is one, is that we are a created people. So we are created by God. And so the, the first and foundational point here is that the people of God are a created people by God. So here's why I mentioned that up front. It's not as though God looked at all the peoples of the world and said, oh, I'm so impressed by these people, so I'm going to love them and choose them. It's not like that. It's not like a guy who goes into a party or, or he goes to a dance or whatever, or he's in class in college and he looks across the room and, and he sees her. And he's like, whoa, I, I really want to get to know her personality because what I see is just so amazing. And he then goes up to her and he kind of flirts with her or gets to know her and, and he's pursuing her and he wants to get to know her because he's attracted to the beauty that he saw. Like, let's just be clear, you, you can't see her personality right away. Like, you see what she looks like first. And then I would hope that it would progress from that to get to know what she's actually about. But that's where it starts. And it's not like that with God. It's not as though God saw you and me and, and saw our beauty and was so attracted to our, our moral beauty and our intellectual beauty and all of our abilities. No, God was not attracted to us like that. God was not impressed with us. There was nothing in us. God was not moved by our beauty to pursue us, to love us to choose us. No, no. God was moved to pursue us as his people simply because of his character. It's the character of God that moved him. And so what makes us beautiful, what makes us lovely is that God loves us. It's not as though the other way around where God loves us because we're beautiful. No. No, God, God loves you, and that makes you beautiful. That gives you purpose. That gives you eternal value. That, that is the sanctity of human life is because we are loved and created by God. And so the people of God are created by God. You see that in Genesis 1. We'll start right at the beginning as we have every week in this series. God makes Adam and Eve, so he creates them. And it says in Genesis 1, it says that he blessed them. So he makes them, and then he, he pronounces this blessing. He's moved to bless Adam and Eve. And then God tells his people, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
So you have to keep that phrase in mind that you see in Genesis 1. God blesses his people, and then he gives them a commission. He says, okay, I am blessing you, my people, so that you will be a blessing to the rest of the world by filling it with image bearers who know God, who treasure his glory, and then will reflect his glory. So you see God's people right there in the garden. But you also know the story from the fall. They failed. They rejected God's love. They rejected God's relationship and did not yearn for God's glory. They completely rejected who God is. And so what you have there is they're exiled. They're out of the Garden of Eden. So then what happens? Well, God still loved them. Because you see in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, that God promises to send a future Messiah to defeat the serpent. And so he still loves them. And the rest of Genesis shows how God continues to love the descendants of Adam and Eve, his original people, even though they rejected him. So keep following the story. Get to Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel loves God. Cain does not. Cain kills his brother Abel. And yet God is still merciful and provides another child for Adam and Eve. But Cain and all of his descendants were rebellious and were not part of God's people. They rejected God and God did not choose Cain. God chose the thirdborn, Seth. And so Seth, then through his lineage, you see the people of God Continue. Seth taught his sons, who taught their sons, who taught their sons and for, for many generations. And if you read this in Genesis, what you will see is this lineage through Seth that is preserved of people who love God, who are part of the people of God. And then you eventually get to Noah. Noah, who was living in a very corrupt and very evil world, who is a descendant of Seth, the same lineage of people that were taught, who were taught, who were taught by their fathers. And so then Noah, who was taught, loved God. And so God preserves his people, Noah and his family, through the great flood. And then he remakes the world, and he still has his remnant. He still has his people that he is preserving. In the middle of a very wicked world, he is still preserving his people. So then what happens, Genesis 9, you have Noah presented as a new Adam because he is told after the flood, he says, and you, God tells him, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. So you see again, the same language of Genesis 1, again now in Genesis 9 with Noah, the people of God still are blessed by God, chosen by God, and have a commission, have a mission to fill the earth with more image bearers so that God's glory can be multiplied. Keep tracking in the story and get to Genesis chapter 12. You meet a man, man there named Abram. Now, let me read to you very briefly what you see with Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis. Read verses 2 and 3. And this is what God tells him. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. You see that word again? Blessing. 
from chapter 1. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the, all, here, here's the key, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you see it again, this same theme, chapter 1, through Noah, now with Abram, the same thread is continued. God loves his people, he blesses his people, and then he gives them a mission to go and multiply. You're seeing this here where all the families of the earth will be blessed through a descendant, the Messiah, who will come through Abraham. And he says that he's going to make a great nation, a people for himself. And the name Abram means exalted father, but he was actually fatherless. So his name was kind of an oxymoron. This guy named Exalted Father who didn't even have a father, didn't even have a son. And God promises you will have a son. And then many years later, when he was 100 years old, he does have a son, the son of promise, Isaac. But before he was even born, God promised him that he would be a father and that he would make a great nation, that his people would come from Abraham. And so then in Genesis 17, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham means father of multitudes. So the name is significant. He's saying, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. I, I won't do hand motions because that's embarrassing. But that song is thoroughly biblical. It is. There is great biblical theology in that kid's song. God promised to bring his people from Abraham's lineage. This is pointing straight to Jesus in case you missed it. That all the nations, all the people groups of the world will be blessed by one of your future descendants, Abraham, your father of multitudes. And he tells him, this is in Genesis 17, he says, and I will be their God. So this refrain of they will be my people and I will be their God. This is the promise. This is the purpose of God creating a people who know him and treasure him and love his glory and then by the Spirit's help reflect it to the world. So this promise to Abraham, tracking in the story, is reaffirmed with all of his, his descendants. And so if you keep reading in Genesis, to get to chapter 26, you see Abraham's son Isaac, verses 3 and 4 of that chapter, you see the reaffirmation of the promise that was given to Abraham to bless all nations. And then you have Abraham's grandson, Jacob. This is also in Genesis. This is verse chapter 28, verses 13 and 14. You have, once again, the reaffirmation of all nations will be blessed through you. And then you see it again, with Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, at the very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 49, verse 10, there's this promise that Messiah will come from the line of Judah. 
a descendant of Judah will one day rule over all of God's people, but it says the obedience of all nations. The obedience of all nations will belong to this descendant from Judah, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, Seth, same lineage. It's the people of God. This is what God is doing, creating a people for himself. And Genesis ends with the descendants of Abraham. Now there are about 70 people. They move to Egypt and they moved there because there was a famine and they would have died. And of course, God is sovereign. If they had stayed in the promised land and would have died, then there would be no Messiah. Because God promised he would come through the line of Judah. But of course, God's got this. And so he had sent Joseph to Egypt beforehand. And then he brought the whole family and they live in the safety of Egypt. But they're no longer in the promised land. They're living outside of it. So in a sense, they're exiled once again. And if you turn the page after Genesis ends, you get to the next book called Exodus continuing in the exact same storyline. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Exodus, in most translations, it doesn't have the word and. Now, there is one. The New American Standard Bible does have the word now to start Exodus chapter 1, but most translations just kind of chop off that word, which kind of irks me because it's supposed to, because original Hebrew, it has the word and as the very first word of Exodus 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And that's important because it connects it to the end of Genesis. So Genesis ends, you turn the page, you get to Exodus, and it says, and. It's just continuing the same story where it just left off with Genesis. There is nothing random about the Bible. There is sequence and there is purpose. There is one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. So let's read the Exodus 1, 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So Israel is Jacob because Israel, he was renamed. So Jacob is named later, but we didn't get into that. It's too much for one sermon. But so, so Jacob is renamed Israel. So who is Israel? Jacob. So the sons of Jacob are the sons of Israel. It's the same person. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with their household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. Listen to this, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Did you, did you catch that language in verse 7? Does it sound familiar? It says that the people of Israel, the people of God, it says were fruitful, and they increased greatly, and they multiplied, and grew increasingly strong, and the land was filled with them. That should remind you of Genesis. 
because it's repeated throughout Genesis. It's one story. You see God's people now fulfilling the purpose that God had for them back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, on fill the earth and multiply and spread the glory of God with more image bearers who know God and worship Him. So they're fulfilling their purpose. But more importantly, God is keeping His promise to create a people that will worship Him. This is a purpose of God, is to create a worshiping community. And so the foundation for being part of the people of God is understand that we are created by God. He didn't just pick us randomly. He chose us, he created us, and made us into one people. Truth number two, the people of God are a redeemed people. So we're a created people by God, and we're redeemed by God. So the whole book of Exodus describes redemption. The word to redeem, so redemption, simply refers to paying the price to free a slave who's in slavery. So the redemption price refers to the price that you would have to pay. And so that is what you see in Exodus chapter 1, when God's people were then enslaved by the Egyptians. Let's read verses 12 and 13. It says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. So you see, they're growing, fulfilling God's purpose, growing as the people of God, expanding, and yet you have the enemy. And don't be deceived here. When you see the Egyptians making the people of God slaves, this is not just a political thing. It's not just, oh, the Egyptians wanted to have a better economy, and so they needed to have slave labor to expand their cities and build their pyramids and expand their civilization. What the Egyptians didn't even realize is that behind the scenes, the same serpent that wanted to destroy the people of God in the garden and through Genesis and with that famine was now trying to destroy God's people. And if you keep reading, what you see is pure evil. You see the Egyptians taking babies and throwing them into the Nile, killing children, infants, part of a culture of death that doesn't value human life. Where do you think that comes from? It comes from the serpent. It comes from our enemy who wants to kill the unborn and kill the infants and wipe out God's people because he hates you because you reflect God. You are made in the image of God. So of course he hates you because he hates God. And he hated God's people and he has always been hating them and he has been trying over and over to prevent the Messiah from coming, but there's no way because God is more powerful and his purposes can't be stopped. And that's what you see in Exodus. 
Because it says the more that they were oppressed, the more they were being persecuted, the more that life got hard, it says the more that they multiplied. That has been repeated in church history for 2,000 years. When the church experiences persecution, when the church has to make a decision, will we take a stand and preach the gospel or not? Will we take a stand and say LGBTQ plus is they're humans? It's a sin. It's no worse than any other sin, and yet it is a sin. And we will love the sinner, but we will not condone the lifestyle. And when that becomes hate speech, do you take a stand and preach the truth or not? I mean, I'm just saying, I've, I've had so many people ask me, why, why is Renewal Church still meeting? It's too risky. It's unsafe. It's not a good idea. You shouldn't be gathering in this season. And all I can say is we have the freedom to do it. And I've lived in a Muslim country where it's not and I know what it's like to have that freedom taken away. And we're going to exercise that freedom and gather as long as we are able to. And we will seat people as safely as we can, wear masks when we're engaging with each other. But the reality is that we're called to gather. And so we will not be afraid. We're not going to be afraid. And, and those that physically cannot come because of their health, their age, their cir circumstances, as we've said many times, we do not judge those that can't gather. We love and respect. I mean, honestly, half our members are right now watching a live stream. And we love you. We want you to remember that. Well, you understand if your situation is such that you physically can't come, I'm talking about the point, the principle of not giving in to fear and walking with confidence and trusting that our God has a purpose for us. And we have been created together. We exist as the people of God, as one people. And I'm sorry, but the reality is COVID-19 is demonic. It is evil because think about what it has created. Fear, anxiety, sickness, death, churches not gathering. Whose fingerprints are all over that? It's the enemy who wants to divide. And it's just been so crazy just seeing the division that things like wearing masks can cause. And we'll talk about that later as we, as we get further on in this, in this sermon Man, I just get so fired up about the people of God because I love this absolute privilege that we have to oppose the enemy and to take back ground that he took when we fell. And so we will continue to gather as long as we are physically able to. And we will keep preaching the gospel with no fear because we are a redeemed people by God And the more that the enemy tries to oppress us, the more that we're going to multiply and reach more people. So he can keep trying to oppress and we would just see more lives transformed. It's just the way God has orchestrated it. Because God has a plan to multiply his gathered people. 
The word exodus means exit or departure. God's people were in slavery and then they departed from, they exited slavery. They left Egypt. And he did it when he appeared to Moses with, in the burning bush because fire always represents God. And so you see in this burning bush, that's a symbol of God. You see it with Elijah, who's taken up chariots of fire. You see it when they're in the wilderness with the pillar of fire. That's God's presence. See in Acts 2, when tongues of fire descended upon God's people. And so fire is a picture. It represents who God is in the Bible. And so God appears in this flaming bush and he calls Moses and he tells him, you go to that evil king and tell him, let my people go. That they can come and worship me. And let's read about that in Exodus chapter six. Let's just get a flavor of this. Exodus six verses five through seven. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. This is God's people, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. This is back with Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis. He remembers the covenant he made with God's people. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Man, that is just such food for our souls. It's a healing balm over whatever it is that you are struggling with today. Whatever pain you're experiencing. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you will be delivered from under the burden of slavery. God says that he remembers. He remembers, he takes action. Remembers, and then he delivers to free. And there's that word, he says, I will redeem. Again, redeem means to pay the price to liberate a slave. But there's a purpose so that he wants to free them, liberate them from their slavery, so that for the purpose of, you will be my people and I will be your God. There's the point. The point of what? The point of everything. The point of your life. The point of why your heart is beating this very minute. The point of your creation. The point of your existence. Why you are on the face of this earth. The point. The point is knowing God, enjoying his presence, belonging to the people of God. That is your purpose. It is why you exist. This is what God is doing. He is rescuing a people. Redemption is the means. Here, this is important. Redemption is not the end. There's a difference with ends and means. 
Redemption is not the end. Redemption is the means. God does redemption for the end of worship. The end is always worship. The end is always God. He's the goal. He's the hope. He's the purpose. God is the end, which is why in Exodus 4, when God says to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, in verse 23, he tells Moses why he wants his people to be set free, so that they may worship me. That's the end. That's the end game. That is why we exist. God's purpose from the garden with us today into eternity future has always been, always will be the same. Worshiping him. So he sets us free. He redeems us. He paid the redemption price. Now when you see in, in, in Exodus where they leave, the night that they left, they had a Passover where a lamb was killed and they smeared the blood over the doorpost to indicate that they were trusting God to redeem them and that that lamb had died in the place of the firstborn son who represented that family. And so what you have is a shedding of blood in order for there to be redemption. Shedding of blood to be set free. There had to be a price that was paid. But this isn't the first time that you've seen bloodshed because we saw this last week with covenant with Genesis 15, where God enters into this covenant and it was called cutting a covenant. Kind of like they were talking about cutting a deal. Well, that language has come from cutting the covenant, where you, we talked about this last week, but you would take some large animals, five of them, three were large animals, you would cut them in half and you would put them across from each other. And when all the blood was drained, it would create literally a pool. Like these are large animals. You can only imagine how much blood would pool between these animals that were cut in half. And that was called the blood path. And you would have the first party who was usually the, the party that had more authority would walk through the blood path and would literally stomp through the blood in this pool of blood. And, and then the lesser party who was under the authority would, would follow behind. And they were both saying, we're entering into, into this solemn pledge where if one of us breaks this covenant, then may I experience what these animals just did, which is have my blood shed and may I die. So if you were here last week, you know that it was only God who went through. And he was, it was a... a a pot that was smoking and a torch. Again, fire represents God, but so does smoke. Because when the temple was built, it was filled with smoke. When Mount Sinai, when God was present there, there was smoke on the mountain. And so smoke is also a picture of God. And so you have fire and smoke literally passing, God himself passing through the blood path, stomping his essentially in this blood. God the Father is doing this as God the Son who would one day become Jesus when he will take on human flesh. You have God the Son in heaven, heaven watching his Father walk through this blood path. 
And then there you have Jesus in heaven knowing, all right, that has just sealed my fate. Knowing that one day it would be Jesus who would walk through the blood path for you and me. And there were many, many sacrifices over the generations. This is just a normal thing for Israelites. And if you read in Numbers 28, the first four verses, it describes how God commanded his people to have two special sacrifices every morning, like mid-morning, and then towards the evening. It says twilight, so towards the end of the day. Now, in the Hebraic understanding, that was 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., And over the years, this just developed where every single morning at 9 a.m. in in the temple, you would have the priest who would have the animal holding the knife, waiting to slit the throat of the animal. And you would have another priest who was on the pinnacle of the temple. He was holding a shofar. A shofar was a musical horn made out of a a ram's horn. It is kind of like a bugle, but Hebrew style. And... And so you would have this high priest, or a a priest rather, who was on the temple's pinnacle holding a shofar waiting, and the other priest was holding the knife ready to cut the throat of the animal on the altar, and there was someone else who who was holding a sundial because they didn't have watches back then. And they were waiting, and the second that it was 9, 9 a.m., he would motion to the other guy who was on on the pinnacle, and he would blow the shofar at the same time that the other priest would then slit the throat of the animal on the altar. Every single day, this was normal. Every Jew was used to this. Yep, it's 9 a.m., it's time for that sacrifice. And then again at 3 p.m., they would do this every single day because God told them to, to remind them how there is a price to be paid for our freedom. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, that we deserve death because God told us in the garden, on the day that you disobey, you will surely die. And we don't believe it. We don't think there's consequences. And so we go about our own way until we realize, oh, there actually are consequences for our sin. On the saddest day in human history, on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull, at 9 a.m., the king of glory had his hands and his feet nailed to a cross at the exact moment that the shofar was being blown at the temple. It was 9 a.m. when he was crucified. And then six hours later, as the king of glory was breathing his last breath, and as he, drowning in his blood, cried out, It is finished. I have completed redemption. I have just walked through the blood path at that exact moment at 3 p.m. The shofar was being heard on the pinnacle of the temple, indicating it's time for the daily sacrifice. They had no idea how right they were. 
the once for all sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had just walked through that blood path for you and for me. Where Adam failed, Jesus did not. Where every other little M or little C Christ, little M Messiah from Moses and from David and all these other leaders, where every one of them failed, Jesus did not. He's Messiah. He's a resurrected redeemer of the world. And he did it to purchase a people. He did it so that you and I could know each other as brothers and sisters and know God as Father and be part of the people of God. Do you understand what we are? Do you understand what this is? This is the gathering of the blood-bought people of God. Now just tell me it's not essential. Just try and tell me. Just try to convince me. You won't get very far because of who we are. We're the people of God bought with the blood of Jesus. Exodus 19 verse 5 says that you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. Treasured possession. That's what you are. Treasured. God treasures you. The people of God are created by God and redeemed by God. Number three, the people of God are a people of all nations. We're not just one, one ethnic group. We're a people of all nations. I want to read to you out of Exodus 12, because I think sometimes we think that the people of God originally were just ethnic Jews, descendants of Abraham, but that's not true. Exodus 12, when they were leaving after the Passover, as they're leaving slavery, leaving Egypt, here's what it says. Exodus 12, 37 and 38. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses, which was obviously in Egypt, to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Listen, verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. God's plan has always been and always will be to gather people of all nations together to praise the lamb who was slain. It has always been about all nations, which is why you see in the very beginning where it says, fill the earth, multiply Always has, always will. Which is why you feel like Jethro, Rahab, Caleb, Ruth, these people that were not ethnic Jews were part of God's people. Romans 11 describes one tree, one people of God with natural and also with um, wild branches, but together grafted in as one tree, one people of God, not separate. I'm going to read you one last verse and then we will make our way towards a conclusion Genesis, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 
verse 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Listen to this, verse 29, very important. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled through Jesus, and then we are those that have received that promise. So the people of God is made up of ethnic Jews and of every other nationality under the sun. We are one people made of many different ethnicities. So we yearn to be a church that will reflect her community, which is increasingly diverse. And so I yearn to see Renew Church be an ethnically diverse church that is reaching people from all nations where we can have unity within our diversity. And so you have this thread from, from Adam to Israel to Jesus to the people of God, the church. It's just one thread, one people of God together. If you trust in Jesus, you are an heir of the promises made to Abraham. God's people are created, they are redeemed, and they are of all nations, chosen by God. That's a big topic. We don't have time to get into that this morning. And it's just skip lunch, which we won't do that to you today. And there is a degree of mystery with having been chosen by God, but, but the point of being a particularly redeemed. So in theology, talk about particular redemption, how God is redeeming a particular people. He, he chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Abel, not Cain. He, 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 he has a particular people that he is choosing and that he chose you before the foundation of the world. So yes, there is definite mystery and there's questions that I can't fully answer, but here's the point. You are the recipient of eternal love. That is the point. In eternity past, God knew you and loved you. He knows you and loves you now, and he will love you into eternity future. And so predestination or this being chosen, being elected by God, what this means is that you are part of an eternal love that God chose you. You didn't choose him. We love God because he first loved us. This is who we are. We are chosen. We are not forsaken. I am a child of God. As you wrap up, fourth point, God's people are deeply connected people. So we are created, we are redeemed, we are of all nations, and we are deeply connected to one another. And so our purpose is lived out in community. We can't, we can't follow Jesus alone. It goes against God's design. He's made us as a people. So let me ask you this question. Let me ask you three brief like, points to ponder as you wrap up. Your purpose is to be lived in community. And so do you truly love the people of God? Do people in our church really know you? I mean, like for real know you. Your struggles where you're at, who are you real with? Or do you just come and wear a mask and, and then leave and pretend that everything is okay? I'm just being real. If, if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for a church where you can just come, sit, and leave, you found the wrong church. 
like, you're not going to like it here. Like, that's not how we roll. We, and I'm not trying to be judgmental or kick you out. I'm just, I'm just giving you fair warning. We're going to get to know you, and we want to know you. And, and we want you to know us, and we want to be one people that are intimate. And so do you want that? Do you want to be transparent and vulnerable and real and share your life with God's people? You're made for it, but do you want it? While we have covenant membership, we're committed to each other. I'll ask you this question in relation to this. Can you keep peace with people who don't agree with you on non-essential issues? If a brother or a sister has a different opinion than you do on a certain topic that's controversial, like wearing masks, for example, is that a cause of division for you? Or can you maintain unity even when we disagree on hard things? Acts chapter 9 verse 4 describes how the murderous Paul was, was trying to kill God's people and Jesus appears to him and Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with God's people, with his people, that he says persecuting my people is persecuting me. Do you identify with God's people on that kind of a level where your identity is wrapped up in being part of God's people, where you love the people of God so deeply? Is that where you're at? Because that's where Jesus is at. He deeply loves his people. Your purpose is to multiply. We've seen that over and over. God's people multiply. And God is crying out still today, let my people go. Are we going to be the ones that will rise up and say, I will be used by the king. I will be on mission and reach people so that more people can experience the freedom and joy of God. And last year, as we close, your purpose is truly stunning. Do you realize that? Are you aware of how magnificent and just truly glorious it is are you living out in a way that is consistent with who God says you are? Are you reflecting this, this glory that God has bestowed upon you?